the man who came to Jesus by night. John chapter 2, verse 23, and to John chapter 3, verse 9. My beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, at our last study, brethren and sisters, we saw our Lord in blazing and righteous indignation, chasing those spiritual Canaanites out of his father's house. It was a wonderful sight to behold, was it not? As the Lord publicly rebuked and showed up these charlatans for what they were, hypocrites, making merchandise of God's people in the house of God, and in so doing, brethren and sisters, cluttering up the court of the Gentiles as if the Gentiles were less than swine and had no right in God's house over the privileged Jewish race. No wonder our Lord was so angry as he was. And you know, at that time, brethren and sisters, that was not the only thing that he did to make the people wonder. Because we're told, incidentally, in this record, that at that time, the Lord performed many miracles, or signs, as John calls them. And the people, of course, would at the one hand be greatly offended, or some of them would be. The bulk of the people, the poor people, would be overjoyed at seeing this sort of thing chased out of the temple. And then all of them, brethren and sisters, would be agog at these miracles which he obviously performed at this time. One of the witnesses to those miracles was Nicodemus. We're going to consider him tonight, brethren and sisters, and the reason we didn't read the whole of the record of Nicodemus is because that we want to deal with Nicodemus and his conversation with our Lord in two studies. Now that's a pity, really, because there is a wonderful, of course, flow of thought in this conversation. And I would have liked to have done it in one study, but that's impossible, brethren and sisters, with the matters that were raised. They were profound matters. Simple, but very profound. That's why Jesus said to this man three times, truthfully, Truthfully. And he prefaced his remarks three times like that. Verily, verily, listen. Truthfully, truthfully, he said. To impress upon this master in Israel, brothers and sisters, those wonderful and profound truths of which we are related to. So we're going to deal with the story of Nicodemus in those two studies and hopefully in the intervening fortnight we'll be able to remember what we've studied together. Maybe we'll, we'll recapture that a bit and then when we come back we'll just put the other half on so we might have the whole story here in a nutshell as it were and see the conversation that, that, that went on between our Lord Jesus Christ and this man who later became one of his most wonderful followers, Nicodemus. And every minute spent with him, brothers and sisters, was worth it. Every minute the Lord spent with him was not lost. And we pick up the record in verse 23. After that he chased them out of the temple, we read there, now look how it reads. Did you notice it carefully? Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, in the feast, never mind about the word day, it's not in the original. Look how John portrays that, brethren and sisters. Putting our Lord in this context here, as he walks among the people, he's in Jerusalem. He's at the Passover. They're in the middle of a feast. And John is telling us, brothers and sisters, in this story, Here's the greatest city. Here's the greatest feast. And here, uh, the greatest sacrifice, rather, and the greatest feast associated with it. None greater. Jerusalem, the Passover, the feast. So 
the whole aura of excitement is painted in those three words. The whole aura of excitement. And people were bubbling over with excitement and punctuating that feast were these dramatic miracles our Lord is doing. And there is, of course, a fervor of excitement among these people as they watch those miracles. And Nicodemus is one of them. We read in verse 23, that when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, in the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. And you know, brothers and sisters, when John tells us they believed in his name, don't be deceived by that expression. Well, you see, the word name, the understanding of a name, which we've all come to appreciate, is an index to a certain character or a certain incident or whatever. They believed in his name, all right, his name as a miracle worker. But look at chapter 3 and verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's what they should have been believing in. But this believing in his name, brethren and sisters, as a miracle worker, was a very shallow belief indeed. And we're going to see a little later on another exhibition of people who believed in him for about three minutes until his next breath to them turned their hearts from believing in him to absolutely hating him. That's how shallow that sort of belief is. So don't be misled by John's expression, they believed in his name. It all depends what sort of a name they were giving him. Nobody was believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They believed in him, says John, when they saw the miracles that he did. And that belief didn't last very long at all. And you know, John is deliberately contrasting that belief, brothers and sisters, with the one in, in the previous verse. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And there are two groups of people, and they're all believing, one thing or another. And this group of shallow people who were witnessing these miracles believed in his name as a miracle worker. But those disciples believed in the scripture and in the word that Jesus had said. But they didn't believe it then, brethren and sisters. They believed it when he had risen from the dead and they'd seen the greatest of all miracles. Then they believed it. And one thing about that belief, it lasted. It lasted. And you know, brethren and sisters, We've deliberately had this story, as I, I say, because of the, the amount of material that's in it. And also because we want to dwell upon some of the wonderful exhortations that are in this story. How lasting is our belief? That's the question. Are we full of excitement at certain times in our lives, brothers and sisters, perhaps when we six-day war or events like that, when we get into a fervor of excitement? But where's the lasting belief in the name of the only begotten Son of God? Where is that? And it wasn't here. Jesus knew that, brethren and sisters. You know, we read in verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew them all. You see the word men there? That's in italics too. And although it's true that our Lord knew all men, John's not really saying that there. He says he knew all that crowd that was around him. That's what he's telling him. And although I say the Lord did know all men, 
as we're going to learn a little later on in the next few verses. At the moment, though, he knows that crowd there. He knew them all. You know, brothers and sisters, and knowing them, it says he didn't commit himself under them. You know that word, commit himself under them? You know that's exactly the same Greek word for belief. Epistion, it's the word for faith. They had faith in his name as a miracle worker, but he had no faith in them. None whatever. And he knew that whole crowd. And you know what I believe John is trying to tell us? I believe he's trying to tell us two things when it says that the Lord did not commit himself unto them. He had no faith in them. And the word faith, of course, also has the idea of entrusting somebody. He didn't entrust himself to them. Now, what, what was it he didn't entrust to them? I believe there are two things. Keep these in your mind when we come to Nicodemus. First of all, brethren and sisters, the Lord never got carried away by popularity. And as that crowd swirled around him in the temple, at the Passover, in the holy city, and the great excitement, how easily could the Son of God, with his heritage, suddenly walk into the limelight of glory in that atmosphere, and the Lord never got carried away. You know, it's all very well to sustain the temptation of, an ad- of the adulations of a crowd, but given the right circumstances and the right place, you can get quickly carried away. A big circumstance, a big city, a big sacrifice and a big crowd. But he never got carried away. He never pandered to their feelings, brothers and sisters, he never exploited the possibility of popularity. That's one thing. And the other thing, he didn't bother to teach them either. He didn't entrust himself to them. That's what the Greek is saying. He wasn't carried away and he didn't bother to try and tell them truthfully, truthfully, it would have been a waste of words. So he walked away from them, brothers and sisters, because he knew the whole crowd of them. John goes on to tell us, he didn't need that he should testify of man. Of course he didn't, for he knew what was in the man. It's astonishing, brothers and sisters, how many times in the in this third chapter of John, and the last few verses of chapter 2, how many times a definite article appears? It's astonishing. He talks to you about the man. He's going to speak about the ruler, the teacher, the son, the only begotten, the truth, the spirit, the flesh. It's a big occasion, because he's going to speak, to speak about a master of Israel, and everything's got these attached to it. If you look at that master of Israel's eyes, he spoke about fundamental principles. The man, the son, the only begotten, the flesh, the spirit. John put all the definite articles there to tell us when he got into Nicodemus' presence, he did wait, or rather spend his time, and he spoke about the big issues of life. He put them all in the nutshell for that master of Israel that he might contemplate them. And he didn't need that anyone should testify of the man. And this time he's not talking about the little crowd there, brothers and sisters. He is talking about all men. They're all the same as that crowd. It wasn't as if the Lord didn't entrust himself only to that crowd. He wouldn't entrust himself to any of the man. Because there's got to be an end to the man. And a new beginning. And Jesus is not going to entrust himself to anyone who tries to perpetuate his own existence and personality. Not interested. And so he doesn't spend 
that time with the people. And, says John, he didn't need that any should testify or witness to what was in man. You know, brothers and sisters, we would believe that if we didn't have John record, but we've got John record. And in those early chapters of John, look at the illuminating way the Lord looked straight through men. Nathaniel, Peter, Nicodemus, the woman of Samaria. Come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. And in these early chapters of John, John is dwelling upon that, that, that aspect. He didn't need that any should witness it. There's all the evidence. I saw you under a fig tree. Your name's Peter. Nicodemus, you're a ruler of the Jews. And tells this woman about her five husbands. He didn't need anyone to witness to him. He saw right through them, brethren and sisters. But before you ever believed, though, that the Lord was given some magical power that he might look through people, Remember this, that there are two Greek words that are used consistently in relation to our Lord's knowledge of people. And one of them certainly does indicate supernatural power. But the other word, brethren and sisters, gnosko, is a word that's used of your powers and my powers. Powers that are available to anyone who thinks. And it wasn't as if God whispered in our Lord's ear the characters of people so much, he read them because he understood God's book. And because his father read them well, so did he. Because he saw people through God's eyes. We mustn't always assume, though sometimes it is the case, we must not always assume that it was the supernatural power that our Lord was able to see through people. We pride ourselves at times in seeing through people, and if we can see through them in, in part, what do you think he could? And he didn't need any that was testified. He knew what was in man. Who doesn't? No good thing, says Paul in Romans 7 verse 18. That's not hard to know. Not a lot to know about man. No good thing is how Paul styles it. Or in the seventh chapter of, our Mark, of Mark, the Lord calls it, out of the heart of man comes only evil. So he knew what was in him, all right. And chapter 3 says, and there was a man. And up he comes, Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus, brethren and sisters, in the dark. He might as well walk in a floodlight, as far as our Lord was concerned. He was absolutely transparent. And almost as if John's going to give us an evidence of our Lord's powers, here comes a man. There was a man. And when you read that through, like our brother Peter did, you see the connection. He needeth not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in the man, and there was a man. Here he is. And we're going to see two things. We're going to see, brothers and sisters, that in the case of Nicodemus, he certainly didn't need to know anybody should testify what was in him, because the ensuing conversation revealed that our Lord had read him from top to bottom. But, and this is very significant, he did entrust himself to that man. And that is significant. It's not as if John is recording this, this conversation, brethren and sisters, that we might see our Lord's superiority over Nicodemus. That he might exalt the Lord and diminish Nicodemus. That's not the point at all. This record is to Nicodemus' eternal credit that our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who had precious time upon the earth, spent some of that time with that man. He entrusted himself to him. 
because he knew he'd get a response. So he was not like the ordinary crowd. He was not like the ordinary crowd. And our Lord granted him an interview. And I don't believe, brothers and sisters, that too many people would have got that. You know, you sometimes when you hear people talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, especially if you've ever read anything in the paper or whatever, that you might read about the church's attitude towards him, that Jesus would spend time with anyone. I don't believe that is so. Here's the case here. He didn't want to, he didn't entrust himself to anybody in that crowd, but he gave him time. When it came to the Pharisees, of whom Nicodemus was one, and the disciples came and told the Lord about their concern of him, he said, let them be. That was his expression. Let them be. Don't waste any time with them. They be blind leaders of the blind. But he entrusted himself to that man. And for all that is said in this record, which shows the struggling mind of poor Nicodemus and reveals him to be anything but a master in Israel, it's to his eternal credit that our Lord spent time with him because he knew he'd get a response. And he got a response from his sister. He certainly did. He was a Pharisee. Which, of course, Paul explains in the book of Acts to be the most strictest sect of our religion. The very word itself means a separate one. He would have been right behind. He would have been right behind the fact that if there had to be money changes, if there had to be sellers of animals, I don't think he would have supported that so much, but if there had to be, he would have certainly said they had every right to be in the court of the Gentiles because we of all people, Israel is separate, and among the separate people, he was separate from them. The most strictest sect of our religion. He did the Pharisee, brothers and sisters, a separate one. And that's how he thought. He thought like that. He was brought up like that. And he had to get put straight. Very straight. No one ever got more put straight than he did. In a most profound manner. Nicodemus. His very name is significant. You'll recognise it's a similarity with Nicolaitan. The only thing different is the half of the Greek name for people, because they both mean exactly the same thing. Nicodemus is a Greek word, like a hyphenated English word, which means the vanquisher of the people. And that's exactly what Nicolaitan means. The only difference is for people with Nicodemus, you've got Demas, and in the Nicolaitans you've got the Laos, or the, the laity. Nicodemus was a victory, had victory over the people, Israel. He was a master in Israel. But Nicolaitans, brethren and sisters, had victory, in their opinion, over everyone. The Laos. All the common people lay prostrate at their feet. They were the, the best and the biggest and the greatest over everyone. But Nicodemus had been elevated as a Nicodemus, a ruler of the people, the people of Israel. And that word demos, every time it's used in the Greek, is used of Israel. So he's a master in Israel. He's certainly very, very high among the people. It's only John who talks about Nicodemus. None of the other records mention him by name. Three times, brethren and sisters, he's named. You have a look. We got him here, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, the same came to Jesus by night. Chapter 7. You turn this up with me and have a look at this in chapter 7. Here's the second occasion where he's named. Nicodemus saith unto them, in brackets, he that came to Jesus by night. 
being one of them. Chapter 19, brethren and sisters, of John. And in verse 39. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. That's why we call this talk tonight, the brethren and sisters, the man who came to Jesus by night. John doesn't know him in any other way. In three occasions he's mentioned, John makes that point. He's the one that came to Jesus by night. It was going to be never forgotten by him or anybody who read that record. But he came to Jesus by night. You don't come to Jesus by night. And we're going to see later on, brothers and sisters, we're going to see at the end of the discourse with Nicodemus the reason why you never come to Jesus by night. And it's absolutely glorious when you come to the end of that record. And the Lord gives him the reason why you don't come to him by night. Doesn't mean literally, of course. People came to Jesus by night. But not to cover up. Not to come surreptitiously, so they wouldn't be seen. So they wouldn't be made a fool of. Nobody comes to Jesus by night. John mentions his name three times, and three times that's said about him. And as I say, you come along in the fortnight's time, and I'll show you why you don't come to Jesus by night. Let, well, let John tell us that. The marvellous thing. But this man didn't. He came to the Lord by night. And he was a ruler of the Jews, we read. A ruler of the Jews, Archon. You'll recognise that word, Archon. Arch, we probably would pronounce that in the English, Archangel. Archangel, the first angel. That's what the word means, the first. He was the first among the Jews. You know, over in verse 10, he's called the master of Israel. The master of Israel. Again, the definite article, you, you are the master of Israel. He's number one. And he came to Jesus by night. He had to suffer, brothers and sisters, listening to the words of verse 19. This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and the, uh, into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It was not exactly applied to Nicodemus in the exact sense. He didn't come by night, brothers and sisters, to cover up an evil deed but you know, really, he was just as guilty because he came by night to cover up a good deed. And he had to suffer those words. Men love darkness rather than light, Nicodemus, because their deeds were evil. His deeds were not exactly evil in that sense altogether, but they were evil nonetheless. For he came to cover up a good deed. He came to see the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't come and see our Lord at night. You know, brethren and sisters, when they sat down for the Last Supper and the time came for Judas to depart, it was John that recorded it, isn't he? When he said this, in the, in the end of verse 30 of chapter 13, when Judas went out, he said, and it was night. It was night. It certainly was night. It was the hour of dark. And out he went. And in this man came at night. And you don't come or go to our Lord Jesus Christ at night, brothers and sisters. We'll learn that when we come to the end of this story. Now Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night in verse 2 in chapter 3. And he said unto him, Rabbi. Well, that's something, isn't it? Here's number one, the first. 
the master in Israel. Mind you, he wasn't the only one like that. He wasn't the only one who carried the title of the first. It wasn't because he was called the first. He was just one of them. There were a lot like that. Among the rabbis in Israel, they had their gradations, and the top ones were called the first. He's one of the top ones. We learn from chapter 7 and verse 50 that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The word Sanhedrin, the Greek word Sanhedrin, brethren and sisters, means a collection together. It's a, it's a coalition committee. That's what it is. That's what a Sanhedrin is. Drawn from all faction parties. That they might come together in one group. That they might express their opinion. And that whilst they fight each other to the death on their ideologies, when someone threatens them from the outside, there's the Sanhedrin. Joint session. Like politicians. Who stand on their principles in the Parliament House but if any of them had their livelihood threatened, they would have a joint session because they dare not lose that. The privileges they hold, be they rulers or in opposition. And that's what the Sanhedrin were. They were a whole bunch of hypocrites. And he was a member of that. One of the top of them. And his spiritual condition was that he came by night. And yet even he, brothers and sisters, who wouldn't go around appending to people any great titles because he himself might fall in their shadows. He himself was forced to call the Lord Jesus Christ Rabbi and that's not enough. He had to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Rabbi would never fit our Lord, brethren and sisters, too small. But Nicodemus thought he would be, of course, giving our Lord some compliment. Called him Rabbi. Remarkable thing that he did. In chapter 7 of John, They marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it says in John chapter 7 and at verse 15, and the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters having never learned? You don't become a rabbi without learning. They had their colleges, brethren and sisters. Certainly they did. And of course they were graced by the best teachers in the world. The Hillels, the Shamars, the Gamaliels and so forth, the Jonathans, they were all there. And they fitted men out for a course in life by their education in these, uni- in these Jewish universities, in these spiritual colleges, that they might go out ultimately with their diploma, Rabbi! You don't go around calling peasants Rabbi? Least of all carpenters, least of all people from Nazareth, but he did. Look at his ears. His eyes were soft at those miracles. Goodness may power ran through that man, brethren and sisters. Believe what you like, but there it is, the sight of the eyes. He wasn't like these charlatans today that heal a common cold or a sore toe. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving legs to people who've lost them. He's making men stand up and walk. He's doing remarkable things. He's a god, this man. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't understand how he's a rabbi, but that's what he called him. And he went on to say, we know that thou art a teacher from God. Who's this? Who are the we in question? Look at John chapter 12, brothers and sisters. Here they were, all of them coming to Jesus by night. Not good enough. Here they were in John chapter 12 and verse 42, later on in the history of course, but the numbers were swelling. And in John chapter 12 and verse 42 we read, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Oh no, you can't confess. A Pharisee might be listening. Prejudice, brethren and sisters, 
shocking thing, really. Cleaves your life like that. You know, there are, I suppose, many occasions in our lives we've grown up with our fellows, we've stood for certain principles and sometimes those principles topple over. If you grow older and you look them in the face, you realise not altogether right. We're not talking about the big principles, I'm talking about some of the little small ones. And you think to yourself, well, I've come to a different point of view. But you don't say it aloud. Because as we would put it today, we wouldn't say because of the Pharisees. We'd say, in case we get misunderstood. What we really mean is, we haven't got the courage to say it. There were a lot like that. And I wonder how much of our life, brethren and sisters, we walk to Jesus by night. The thing to think about, when I was going through this record, I felt that keenly. I felt that very keenly. How much do we walk to Jesus by night? We admire him, we love him, we wonder at him. Sometimes we realise that what we're saying and doing is not all what he might have done. We don't want to be misunderstood. But be very careful about that. Very careful indeed. This man was in a very invidious position, was he not? It wasn't only a question of a chief ruler who feared that the Pharisees might be listening. He was a Pharisee. They're the ones that listen. Not only did Nicodemus call him rabbi, he said this. We know, just as those, some of my fellows who won't come here, we know that they are a teacher come from God. You know, in the Greek, it's not put, quite put like that, brothers and sisters. It's put like this. It's put the other way around. He really says in the Greek, he really literally said to the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that from God your teaching comes. He didn't put the Lord first, he put God first. That's what astonished him. When he saw that man performing miracles, he thought, here's a rabbi. And then he sort of followed on a natural corollary to that. As he thought down the track, he thought, well, if he's a rabbi, if he's doing those things by the power of God, what he's saying is coming from God. And that is down at him. And he called him a teacher. That's exactly the same word in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a teacher? That word is not rabbi, brethren and sisters. It's a word which means to instruct. Didactic is the English word that comes from it. To instruct. You're an instructor. And he says, not only that, but your instruction comes from God. From God does your instruction come. That's what he's telling him. The same word is in those places. Imagine when he'd finished his questioning, the Lord said to him, Are you an instructor in Israel? And you don't know this? And again, you have to wait until you find out what he didn't know. You know, we're going to show you, brothers and sisters, what he didn't know is simply this. He just didn't know how to read. He couldn't even read his Bible. It was so plain. But he read right on the top of it. You might think I'm exaggerating. You wait till you come to this. And you watch him read the Bible. It's unbelievable. And that instructor in Israel couldn't read his instructions. But the Lord could. And Nicodemus recognized that. Now, says Nicodemus, we know well, from God does your instruction come. Nobody can do these things except God be with him. And of course, brethren and sisters, therein lay Nicodemus' problem. No man could do these miracles. And you can see him saying it. No man could do these miracles except God be with him. Now the Lord needed not any to test what was in man. Really. This is what he was reading. Because 
subsequent words of, of the Lord tell us, we can go and sit with hindsight now and see what he's reading in his mind. This is what Nicodemus is thinking. He's performing miracles. He's got God's power. He'll set up the kingdom. And the Jews are going to be in the kingdom. And I'm one of the chief Jews. That's what he was thinking. He was thinking, therefore, that the miracles of the Lord would naturally flow on to us. Another demonstration of God's power. He'd overthrow the Romans. He'd set up the kingdom. The Jews would automatically take first place in the kingdom. And he would automatically take first place among the Jews. Is he not one of the first? And the Lord, brothers and sisters, never answered his words. He answered his thoughts. He spoke to his brain, not to his mouth. And Nicodemus would have been absolutely flabbergasted to hear this man talking to his thoughts. Because that's what he was thinking. The Lord was going to teach him marvellous things, brothers and sisters. And as this man was thinking, and just go over that again, and you just listen to the word of the Lord. He's thinking, miracles. That's God's power. God's going to set up his kingdom. That means the Jews are top. And that means that I'm top to the Jews. And Jesus said, truthfully, truthfully, except the man be born again. He can't even see the Jews. That set him back from his sister. That really set him back. You go and talk about being born again amongst these, better not be, I suppose, disrespectful, but amongst these born again Christians. And they'll cry at all their hallelujahs. You go and tell a Jew he's got to be born again. He won't be calling out hallelujah. You'll think you're absolutely mad. Talking to him about being born again. Look, over in John chapter 8, brethren and sisters, have a look at this. This is what they thought about themselves. John chapter 8 records one of the most vehement controversies our Lord had with the scribes and the Pharisees and with the Jews. <coughs> And in John chapter 8 and verse 33, they answered him, We be Abraham's seed and was never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be free? God made us free. We were never in the yoke of free. The Lord pointed out they were servants of sin. Verse 39, they said, Abraham is our father. The Lord pointed out, brothers and sisters, that the devil was their father. And down in verse 41, they claim that God was their father. That he was born of fornication. That's the inference. How you talk to people like that about being born again? You know who they were in chapter 8? If you were read down from John 33, right through that chapter, you would read one of the most vehement controversies in the whole record. And I'm not exaggerating. We quote John 8 time and time again to show the absolute enmity between the seed of the servant and the seed of the woman. You know who those Jews are in John chapter 8? They are style, brothers and sisters, his disciples. Turn back to chapter verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now here's your test. So here's a whole crowd of people, like in the second chapter of John. They believed in him. He goes in the title of my disciples. If 
they continued in that belief, but they didn't last a few seconds. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, the truth will make you free. And that's a, that broke the connection immediately. It didn't last long, did it? But it's astonishing to learn that they were his disciples that were speaking those words. And then down in verse 40, he says to them, you're going about to kill me. That's how much they were his disciples. And the Lord knew that when they believed on him. That's why Nicodemus was told he's got to be born again. Coming back to that third chapter of John, brethren and sisters, note this. He says in verse 3, Truthfully, truthfully, Jesus said, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5 he said, Look, Nicodemus, verily, verily, listen, listen, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So unless you're born again, brethren and sisters, you'll never see it. And unless we're born of water and of the spirit, we can never enter it. There's got to be a belief and a progression of that belief and a consistency in that belief, and it's no good believing in a miracle way. Those are becoming his disciples. Because something tickles your fancy as you interpret his words as you want to interpret them. Unless we have an attitude of mind where we completely lose our identity and start again as a new creature, we won't even see the king. You won't discern it. He's not talking about seeing it with your eyes. You won't even see it. You know, some people can't see the kingdom of God. You go to, a, to an interested friend. And, you know, he says, I believe I'm a, from some Pentecostal church or something. I've been to some theological college. And you show him the promises made the way for him. And Galatians 3, and he goes, ah, 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 ah. He can't see it. Because he's so full of self that he can never, ever get to the point of looking at that record dispassionately and considering it. He never sees it. And there are people who are born again, brethren and sisters, to sufficiently to see a thing but they don't put them in practice in their lives. They're not born of water and of the Spirit and they can't enter. You see, it's a matter of spiritual discernment and spiritual activity. And if we haven't got both of them, we'll neither see nor enter. If we've got one of them, we might see and never enter. And Nicodemus at this stage, brethren and sisters, had neither. He couldn't see the kingdom, though of course he could give you a dissertation on it, second to none, and he still couldn't see it. And he certainly, in his condition, could never enter it. So Jesus told him, he's got to be born again. The margin says, he had to be born from above. You trace, trace the Greek word in its usage, you'll find that it does duty for both ideas. There's a raging controversy as to what it means. It doesn't really matter. Because if we're born again, brethren and sisters, it's got to be from above. It's useless if we're not. And as I say, the word in the Greek is used in either sense. So Nicodemus is told he's got to make a new start from above. But he's on top already. And he's a Jew. What on earth are you going to do with a man like that? Now he was bewildered. Matter of fact, he wasn't quite so bewildered this time as he was next time. Because this time in verse 4 he said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's got real problems. See, he can't see it. You know, Poor old Nicodemus. There's a bit of a rejoinder here that he might make the Lord's teaching with a bit of third. I don't believe that Nicodemus, brethren and sisters, was being malicious. I believe he was completely and utterly bewildered. And because he was a master in Israel, looking at another one that he had addressed as a master of Israel, he felt they both had their pride 
And he can't altogether capitulate and say, Lord, teach me. He can't do that. So, in order to cover up for his own embarrassment and ignorance, he tries to make the Lord look absurd. He doesn't do it next time. All he says next time is, How can these things be? No rejoinder with it. No rejoinder. The Lord left him speechless next time. He didn't know what to say about the next time. But now he's got an answer. How can a man enter his mother's womb the second time? When he's old, what do you do with a developed personality? What do you do with a developed personality? If you've got a personality which has been developed and recognised by other people to be developed, what need there to be another one? And how can you give a man a second start? And how can you put a man back into his mother's womb? Well, let's start from the end. The Lord's not talking about mother's womb. He's talking about from above. The Lord's not talking about men having a second start, brethren and sisters. He's talking about men coming to an end and never starting again forevermore. And the Lord's not talking about embellishing a developed characteristic. He's talking about being dead and starting as a new person entirely. Can't see that. Why can't he see that? Because he's a Pharisee. That's why he can't see that. You go to a person in the world who lives in the gutters of humanity and tell them these truths, they leap at you, they understand it straight away, they've got nothing to lose, but he's got everything to lose. And there's a veil over his eyes, for instance, he can't see that. The Lord's not talking at all about a second start or going back and being born the way you were before or embellishing a developed characteristic. He's talking about a man being baptised and our old man is crucified with him. No second start. No going back to the word. No building upon characteristics we bring to the truth. No way. Dead. You can understand how a Pharisee could never understand that. No way in the wise world could he understand that. Because his whole life, brothers and sisters, was a matter of pride with him. Verse 5. Truthfully, truthfully, the Lord's answering those points. A developed character, second start, mother's womb. Nothing to do with that, Nicodemus. I'm telling you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. You know, brothers and sisters, the Lord now is adding to the point, isn't he? Being born from above is, is equivalent to being born of water and of the Spirit. Now we mustn't, for a moment, think that the Lord is saying, except a man be born of water and except a man be born of the Spirit. He's not saying that. He's saying this, except a man be born of water and the Spirit. They are identical. There are not two baptisms, there's one. I know this is difficult to understand. That's why we divide it in two. Truthfully, truthfully, there's only one. There are not two baptisms, and yet there are two aspects of that one baptism. You turn back to John chapter 1 and verse 33. There is a division of thoughts. John says, that is John the Baptist in chapter 1 and verse 33, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So 
there were two things testifying to one truth in its different aspects of it and emphasis. And you might say to me, oh, but listen, John's baptism was different than the Lord's. Just come back to chapter 3, brethren and sisters, and why do you think that having told Nicodemus that he should be born of water and of the Spirit, that John records immediately after these things, verse 22 and 23, and after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptised, and John also was baptising in Anion, near the seat of Salem, because there was much water there. And here is a practical illustration of being born of water and of the Spirit. And nowhere does our Lord Jesus Christ ever say that his baptism and the John's baptism were different. They testified of the one thing, brothers and sisters. So there might have been two aspects to it, and they were carrying, they were being carried on concurrently in the very view in Judea in front of Nicodemus. Now they hadn't submitted to John's baptism. Over in Luke chapter 7, the Pharisees and the Jews hadn't submitted to that baptism, brethren and sisters, and we learn there a tragic thing, a tragic loss which was theirs. This is what John's baptism was trying to do for them. We read in verse 29 of Luke chapter 7, and all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers margin frustrated the counsel of God margin within themselves being not baptised of him. You see what God was trying to do, brethren and sisters? He was trying to get inside of them the counsel of God into them. He's trying to get that inside them and they're frustrating God's purpose with themselves. They're fools. Is that different from our Lord's baptism? Oh yes, there is a difference. But in spirit there's no difference. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, Luke 3 and verse 3, and the record in Matthew would see whether that's the case, that John was baptising the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So you can't neatly divide them like that either. And yet John's baptism, brethren and sisters, was not altogether valid to forgive sins for eternal life. But they were forgiving sins. Mark, Matthew and Luke says so. We know there no further witness than that. So men were forgiven, brethren and sisters, with an objective in view. And that objective that God had was that they might begin to take within themselves his counsel, that when the Lord came, they might have the opportunity and the grace to stand there and hear him and to receive him. That was God's grace. That didn't come about because they were searching for the truth. And John's baptism gave them, brothers and sisters, God's grace and forgiveness to give them that privilege. They were baptised with water. And that privilege led on to the listening of the Lord Jesus Christ who began within them that counsel that John had begun and, and to embellish that counsel with his own and to bring it to its fullness that it might be developed within them, brothers and sisters, to where the spiritual birth might take place ultimately in a change of body. But they're one thing. And the fact that John records they were baptising together after telling Nicodemus of water and of spirit Proves, brothers and sisters, they were testifying to the one truth. Now, what is that truth? It's as simple as anything. You see, it's a question, isn't it? The one is baptism of water, but the external rite of a man or a woman being purified from his former way of life, 
And what is baptism of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, but the inward operation of the Word of God, which subsequently sanctifies their whole life on the basis of that decision. One thing, but two aspects of it. That's what's happened. So there's the external rite of purification and the internal operation of the same spiritual spiritual word washing and sanctifying a man or woman. What does Paul tell the Corinthians? Ye are washed. Ye are sanctified. Ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Washed in baptism. Sanctified by walking in the truth and ultimately justified or vindicated in the sight of God. That's the process. One thing, brothers and sisters, one leaning on to the other. And if this Nicodemus subjected himself to that, there's no way he can either see or enter God's kingdom. That's what he's going to tell him. Now you think about it. Baptism by water. That's his problem. Wouldn't it have been any problem for him, brothers and sisters, if he was a deceitful man, to accept the Lord's teaching of the baptism of the Spirit? A lot of people will do that. Because you can do that by night. When you bring an interested friend who sees all you're saying, clearly, and they say, yes, that's the truth. Marvellous, wonderful, I believe it all. What about baptism? Oh, what do you mean baptism? You mean the baptism of the Spirit? No, water baptism. Oh, well, I've been baptised of the Spirit. Oh, no, look, you haven't been baptised at all. You've got to be baptised in water. Do I? And you point out the references, and they go away very sorrowful, brothers and sisters, because you can't do that at night. And that's the whole point of it. You know, when you teach people, you say, well, water baptism and spirit baptism is one of the same thing. Well, they say, well, look, if that's the case, don't you think that spiritual baptism has now replaced water baptism? If they're the same thing, why have two? Here's your reason, brethren and sisters. Because, you see, a man or a woman who might testify they're walking in the way of truth and demonstrating God manifestation in their lives might be telling a lie. But when they walk up here and we open that trap door and you're all out there and you watch them put on that white gown and they look absolutely silly and they walk down there in their humility and allow themselves to be pushed under the water and come up again, they're clearly telling you that God is in their life. Or whatever happens subsequently, you know where it started. You try to avoid that and you're coming to Jesus by night. And that was his problem. He wouldn't have liked that bit about water baptism. For that reason and another one. You know, brethren and sisters, when they baptise the gentle, Gentile proselyte and they reserve baptism for him because he needed washing. You don't need to wash a Jew. He's pure as the driven snow. But a Gentile, whew, you're going to bath him. So they introduced baptism. It was a Jewish rite. And they reserved that for polluted Gentiles. You know what they did? They had a formula. They had a formula. So when he came up out of the water, you know what they called him? A newborn child! That's what they said to him. That was what the Jewish rulers called him. So he got baptised and he got called a newborn child. And there were other formulas, all of which had that idea of newborn in them. He needed to start his life again. He didn't have a life before. He was non-existent. But me, I'm different. You know, we don't know, brothers and sisters, how old Nicodemus was. But I'm going to make a suggestion to you that he wasn't young. Obviously he wasn't. 
for two reasons. One, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And they didn't take on Sunday school scholars. And secondly, brethren and sisters, secondly, his very words, how could a man be born again when he is old? And I believe he knew the Lord was talking to him. So Nicodemus would have been an aged man. He could never have been in the Sanhedrin if he wasn't. Now you imagine, let's take a guess, and I wouldn't be far out, let's guess around about the 60s to the 70s. It doesn't matter really, but just for the purpose of our mental exercise. How about a man 60 or 70 who walked in Israel and his very shadow was holy? And imagine his feeling of pride. You know, you think, oh, pride's a terrible thing. We wouldn't be like that. You know, brothers and sisters, sometimes tears come to your eyes. You think after you've given an exposition of something, how marvellous it is after people have told you it's marvellous. That's what brings tears to your eyes. And you wonder what's mingled with those tears, how much pride's mingled with them. You wonder if people hadn't come up and said, that was absolutely tremendous, whether there hadn't been that feeling well up there with you. And you just wonder about the motive for that. And you imagine this man walking in Israel for 60 to 70 years and growing up in Israel to be number one, one of the number ones in Israel. And the Lord said to him, your whole life is a total waste of time. I'm not talking about second chances, refurbishing an old personality or going back in your mother's womb. I'm talking about you being dead, completely and utterly dead. 60 to 70 years of your life, an utter waste of time. That's awfully difficult. That is awfully difficult. How do you go back and tell your peers that you're going to be baptised to testify that all flesh is grass and blows away like the flower of the field and that from henceforth when you come out of that water at say 60 or 70 years of age you've never lived before ever and that the first day from the water of baptism is for you day one. How do you tell a Pharisee that? There's a problem. You know brothers and sisters our Lord was a wonderful teacher Absolutely a wonderful teacher. That's why Nicodemus the second time said, how can these things be? Offered no rejoinder because he could see the logic of it. You see, you come to verse 6. The Lord explains to him, you're talking about your mother's womb, Nicodemus. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Now that's not, brothers and sisters, simply a statement of fact. Though it is a statement of fact. But it's a profound truth. You see, the Greek has it this way. That which hath been born of flesh, of the flesh, again it's the definite article, is flesh. So that which has come forth of the flesh is flesh, brethren and sisters. And when John came to the waters of, when he came to the banks of the river Jordan, he proclaimed that all flesh is grass. He meant Nicodemus was flesh as well as everybody else was, because he had been born of flesh. Let's forget about going back into your mother's womb. That all it will produce again and again and again and again. Be it second, third, fourth, or fifth chances, Nicodemus, that's how it will come. Forget about that. And, similarly, he says, that which is born of spirit is spirit. 
And again, brethren and sisters, the word, the definite article is there. That which is born of the Spirit. Not any spirit. That which is from above is spirit, brethren and sisters. God made a man in his own image, in his own likeness. And when Seth had a son, brothers and sisters, he produced a, a man in his own image and in his own likeness. Adam was a son of God. When he was made upon the earth, though he was of the earth, earthy, he couldn't have been described as the flesh with all the inherent lust and uncleanness, could he? But that's what Seth had. One was born on the earth, the other one was born from above. And if Adam was the son of God, brothers and sisters, because he was freshly made by the Creator, what about he whose origin, far in a far greater sense than Adam, whose origin was from heaven? What about him, the son, as he calls himself later on? That which is born of spirit is spirit. You'll notice that in verse 6 there's no mention of water. Because you see, this time the Lord having taught Nicodemus the process he now teaching him that being born again ultimately means being born of spirit because all is swallowed up in that. Water's forgotten now because that's where it starts but it finishes here. He gives him an illustration. And he says in verse 7, Nicodemus, marvel not that I said unto thee, he must be born again. And if we had our boys from the MIC class who were reading that chapter, and I was asked to give a constructive criticism upon their reading, I'd probably have to tell them they need to read verse 7 again and place the emphasis where it should be. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. You, Nicodemus. I'm not talking about that rabble out there. I'm talking about you. And you see the Lord's eyes penetrating that master of Israel's mind. See the master of Israel with the beads of perspiration standing out on his forehead, brethren and sisters, in the mental effort to keep up with our Lord and with deep down inside of him, as we know, a conviction already building up and he knew where he was heading. I'm talking about you, Nicodemus. I'm not talking about anybody else. You must be born again and don't marvel at that. Oh, I tell you, brethren and sisters, how wonderful that would have been and what a tense moment for that Pharisee and imagine the rest of his life until in the end, there he is. Ah, but look, he's not quite there. Because even when John mentions him protesting of the Sanhedrin, he doesn't really come out of the darkness. He just peeps out the window and protests about some of the injustices that were being perpetrated against the Lord. But he didn't really stand up for the Lord. And when he went to embalm the body of Jesus, brethren and sisters, he didn't go first. Not until Joseph of Arimathea led him there. He probably looked more than looking out the window. He probably walked out the door, but there were still shadows around him. We don't know where it all ended, do we? But we do, really. Because if that had been conceived in his mind, the end was, was absolutely certain. We'll see him, brethren and sisters, and I'll tell you what, I stand to be corrected, but I don't think you'll be able to correct me. I believe we know where we'll see Nicodemus next and with whom we will see him. I believe that when we go into the kingdom of God, we will be introduced to Nicodemus and he'll be standing right alongside the woman of Samaria. And I'll tell you why I believe that when we come to her story. But he will be acquainted with her and he will be able to tell us on that day, standing alongside that woman, that that which is born of the flesh is nothing else but flesh. But we're not born of flesh, either of us. And that's where we'll see you next time.
right out in the noonday, alongside the woman of Samaria, and she came to Jesus at noon. He didn't come by night. And that's where we'll see his neck. So for the moment he struggled. It's you I'm talking about. Not anybody else. You. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Lord's illustration, brethren and sisters, of the mystery of the effect of the Word of God upon a person's life, which is a mystery for all those who don't understand it. Now, in the authorised version, it translates the word root, the word pneuma, spirit, by two words, wind and spirit. And some translators, thinking they're doing a record of service, adjust the AV and they make them both spirit. You know, brothers and sisters, I believe that though pneuma is the word in both cases, I believe the AV is absolutely correct in making the distinction. Because I believe in the whole context of this talk, the Lord was giving him practical demonstrations of spiritual truth. And pneuma, as with the Hebrew word ruach, ruach in the Old Testament, pneuma in the New, both rendered by the word spirit, mean the same thing, a breath or a wind. The Lord using that wind. There's Nicodemus. You've got to make a new start. You don't understand that. And then, picking up his thoughts again, further down the track, he can see what Nicodemus is thinking, hey, but if I'm going to be born again like that, how are my fellows on the Sanhedrin going to understand it? What am I going to tell them? Nicodemus, they won't understand you anymore. You'll be double Dutch for them. It's like the wind, Nicodemus. You hear the voice thereof. The word sound in the Greek there, brothers and sisters, is the Greek word phone. You talk over the phone with your voice. It really means the voice. It's used 18 times in John. That's the only place where it's not rendered voice. You hear the voice of the wind. The Jews don't know where it comes from. And you know, he couldn't have used a more apt illustration. And some have suggested, and they might even be right. But seated there in the night under the candle, under the, under the candle, flickering away in the gloom with these two masters in Israel, one of the earth and one of the he- of heavenly master, sitting there, brethren and sisters, there may have been a rush of wind in the cobblestone street. <laughs> Hear that, Nicodemus? Where did it come from? Where did it go? You don't know. That's what's going to happen to you. They won't understand you. First Corinthians 2, brethren and sisters, look at this. This is what's going to happen to Nicodemus. This is what happens to all of us. We're born of the Spirit. In the first Corinthians 2, Paul fills out, as it were, explains the terminology of our Lord. The wind blows where it misses, but no man knows where it comes or goes. So in verse 14 of first Corinthians 2, the apostle says, But the natural man receiveth not the, spirit, the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual discerneth, as the margin says, all things. Yet he himself is discerned of no man. Absolutely right. You meet a person, you meet an acquaintance you knew in the world, you try to play football with them in the days of your flesh, or done other things which were unholy and unsanctified, and you, you run into them in the street. Oh, they say, where have you been all these years? 
Hey, you went a bit cranky, didn't you? You took on this mad religion and you tried talking the Bible to them. You know exactly what they're thinking, but they got no idea what you're thinking. The spiritual man discerns all things. He reads that man because he was once flesh like him, but the other fellow is bewildered. He can hear your voice, no doubt about that, but he hasn't got a clue where it's coming from. He wouldn't know it came from the Bible, nor does he know its origin, its destiny, is the kingdom of God. And to him, brothers and sisters, it's a sound only. You look out your window on a, on a windy day, and you see the trees bending over in that wind, bending over in the wind, and then flapping back as the wind releases its force, and take it up again, and down goes the branches again. And you say, oh, look at that wind. You can hear it, and you can see that that tree is affected by it, but you can't see that wind. And you say, well, that's a, it's a southerly. A couple of hours later, you say, hey, that's a northerly, or whatever, shift it. Ecclesiastes says, the wind cometh one way, whirleth about, go about another. Who knows the song? But it's powerful, brethren and sisters. And the Lord is giving this master in Israel a very simple Sunday school lesson of nature to teach him profound truth. Truly, truly, I tell you, they won't understand you, Nicodemus. And neither would they, brethren and sisters, when he came to that fullness of time. The whole of the Word of God is the Spirit. It's God breathed. You know the reference. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But from a child there was known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. For all Scripture is given by inspiration. Theos and Numa are in that expression. Given by inspiration. Theos, God, Numa, Spirit. God breathes, says the Apostle, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Look at the word perfect. Look at the word truly furnished. And it's the same Greek word, one with the prefix and one without. And so what the Apostle saying to Timothy is this. All scripture is God breathed that the man of God might be made and then finished. Artiox, ex artiox, made, then finished. And in the beginning, brothers and sisters, God breathed into man the breath of life and he made him. But Adam never allowed God to finish him. He was made a living soul. But he never got finished. He never reached the destiny for which the breath of God had designed him. He was, in a typical way, born of water, but he failed, in his early life at least, to be born of the Spirit. He got made, he never got finished. We don't know what's going to happen to Adam in the ultimate. I'm talking now what the record says about him. You know, brethren and sisters, when we come to the 11th chapter of Isaiah, you talk about wind and spirit. Here it is. Here's how the man of God got made and finished. Magnificently explained by Isaiah the prophet. You've probably heard me tell you this before, but look at it in this context. You read the word spirit here, ruach, a wind or a breath. And Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow up out of his roots, and the Ruach of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The 
spirit of knowledge and of fear of Yahweh. You see, brethren and sisters, it's not just wisdom and understanding, counsel and mind, knowledge and fear. It's not just those things. It's the spirit of those things. The Lord's not just learning academic exercise. He's not just becoming wise or knowledgeable. He's catching the spirit of those things. Ruach and God is breathing into it. Verse 3 tells us, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. We look at the margin, the margin is Hebrew, scent or smell. Do you know why they put that there? Because the word for quick understanding is in the Hebrew, ruach. But you say, well how come breath? It doesn't say that. It says scent or smell. Exactly. You know why? Because you hear the two Hebrew words. They are the same, but different in this sense. But one is pointed, they only had consonants in the Hebrew language and they used to point their vowels with all their jots and tittles so you'd know how to sound the word and to give it its right and proper meaning and its proper context. And so with these two words there, they pointed the first one, ruach, which means to breathe out. And they pointed the second one, which means to breathe in. There they are, brethren and sisters. All scripture is breathe that the man of God might be made and finished. They're breathing together. Nicodemus, you can hear the sound of all that, but you don't know what's going on. And he didn't. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And when the breath of God catches us up, brothers and sisters, with the call of the truth, and we breathe it in, go on breathing. Keep breathing, that that which is made might be finished. You know, in that context of Isaiah 11, it says, He will not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither approve after hearing of his ears. He's there seeing Nicodemus and listening to him. But it's not his eyes or his ears, brethren and sisters, that are discerning that man. He's not assessing and weighing up Nicodemus with his eyes or ears. He's breathing with his father. They're breathing together. Nicodemus didn't understand that, but I'll tell you what the Lord understood as he watched the nostrils of Nicodemus. The Lord was breathing exactly like he. He knew exactly what was in that man because he knew what was in this man. He knew what all flesh was like, even his own. But the breath he was taking and the breath he was taking were two different breaths. As John finishes that chapter by saying, He that is of the earth is earthy. He that is of heaven is the Lord of heaven. There are two different men there, brothers and sisters. They're breathing different air. They can't, Nicodemus can't understand him. The Lord understands him and God. And so Isaiah 11 telling us that one that breathes with God doesn't need his ears or his eyes. So he might weigh men up. He knows them all. Poor old Nicodemus. When the Lord had taken his, blood, his breath and stopped people, in exasperation he said, how, how can these things be? There's no rejoinder about second chances or mother's wounds or getting older and getting older again. All that's gone, brethren and sisters. The bravado is blown out of the master in Israel and he's there as a little baby. He hasn't got a lose. But he knows the words he's hearing are profound. Deep down inside, he knows that. 
and he's beginning that journey of faith, brothers and sisters, which is going to finish up at noon alongside a woman of Samaria and not a committee meeting at night with the Sanhedrin. He's going to change. And they're never going to understand him, though he might understand them. They'll never understand him. And he's commencing that long and wonderful journey which culminates in that wonderful way. And he doesn't know how. How can these things be? And when we come back next time, brethren and sisters, we'll let the Lord tell us how it can happen.